Hi, and welcome to Setting the Standard, a new podcast from the Association of Environment Conscious Building at the AECB. I'm Duncan Smith. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the AECB, and joining me in future podcasts will be our Chief Exec, Andy Simmons, as well as a range of other guests involved in the sustainable building community. As I say, this is a new podcast from the AECB, and I'll try and make it come out twice a month, or on a Thursday usually. However, if it's successful, we'll try and bring it out weekly. We're trying to do more with social media, things like LinkedIn and Twitter and YouTube, as well as podcasts. So it'd be great if you can connect with us on these platforms and these channels. But the aim of the podcast is to inform our existing and potential members in a kind of conversational way about the work that we're doing across the UK within both policy and new build and retrofit, as well as informing you about upcoming events, webinars and conferences, as well as a range of training services that we offer. So we want to hear from our members and get your feedback, as well as have an open offer or provide an open offer to talk about the work that you're doing and the projects that you're involved in delivering, that is AECB members, I should add. So if you're interested, please get in touch with us. I'll leave some details on the podcast in terms of the email address to contact. Now, over the coming weeks, joining myself and Andy will be our communications manager, Sue, and our training manager, Trish and Sarah, as well as our operations manager, Sam. And the aim is to try and inform you, like I say, about what the ECB is doing and who we are and all the things that we're trying to work on just now. Trying to co- communicate with our members, like I say, uh, existing members as well as potentially new members in a way that's informative. So we're likely to cover some newsworthy items in each podcast and have a guest speaker for between 20 minutes and half an hour try to make it around about the, the time that a journey takes, maybe a train journey or a, a run or something. We thought we'd kick off, though, the first podcast with a recording that we previously did um, for our online conference in June. So it's a little bit longer than half an hour this one. It's about an hour. Now, that's where myself and Andy spoke to Jeff at Pacifies Plus Magazine and Sarah at ACAN and now BEST up in Scotland. And it's quite an informative, quite a relaxed conversation, which I thought would be good to kick off the inaugural podcast. So hope you enjoy it. And like I say, please get in touch and tell us what you're doing and if you'd like to come on and talk to us and just generally what your feedback is on the ACB. Thanks. Cheers. Hi, welcome. Hopefully you can hear and see us. I'm Duncan Smith. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at the ACB and, and joining me is Andy Simmons, our Chief Exec, with Sam and Sue in the background, pulling the levers that make all this uh, happen and work. We've got Sarah Edmonds on the call, as well as Jeff Golly, both ACB members, but respectively of ACAN and, and Passive House, Tr- and Passive House uh, Plus magazine, sorry. Um, yeah, be careful there. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you have to, have to be careful there. Um, I know, we wandered into a completely different session. Uh, first of all, thanks for, for coming along. Thanks for joining us. I know that Everyone's incredibly busy uh, just, now, just now. The point of today's conference, we feel, is to engage with their existing membership, engage with new members about some of the work that we're doing, uh, some of what we have been doing over the last six months or so, uh, and just to tell you what that is, the, 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 the scope that we've been involved with, the type of work, what we're trying to really do, what we're trying to change. Um, it's really encouraging membership in the ACB is, is an all-time high, and we really feel that's a... Um, uh, you know, that that's a, a reaction to some of the challenges that we have within climate change and, and the built environment. So we want to showcase some of the work that we are doing, but also some of the work that our members are doing, particularly people like Tim Martell, um, and, and reach out to, as I say, known members uh, about the benefits of becoming a member and, and what we are trying to achieve. So 
not going to talk too much just now because I'll introduce Sarah and uh, uh, and Jeff um, fully as well as some slides from from Andy. The format of the day we've got six presentations um, covering a range of different topics. Um, the ability to to listen or to 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 view um, subtitles is is uh, is on Zoom just now. We should be uh, it should be available, and we'll be recording the sessions. Uh, to put them on our YouTube uh, channel. So um, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Andy and Andy can, can give us an idea and through a few slides of what we've been up to over the last few months. Okay, so um, what we'll do with the slides is we'll just sort of pop backwards and forwards using them to illustrate points as we as, as, as we chat through various aspects, but I'll just give you a quick uh, fly through to show you what, what sort of illustrate the sort of topics we'll be, we'll be covering. Um, but first of all, I think we'll just talk a little bit about some of the things that the ACB has been or currently currently focusing on. So one of the sort of main focuses continues to be retrofit. And we've been working with a, a small technical team, um, uh, ACB technical team, doing a little bit of research into uh, rising to this challenge, this criticism that um, deep retrofit is undoable at scale. And we've been exploring it a bit, and it's a good question. Um, and we've tried to sort of stay a bit sort of flexible in our thinking about this. So what we've looked at is, should we extend the current ACB retrofit standard, which is a whole house retrofit standard, into uh, what, what we used to call a shallow retrofit or a light retrofit with a heat pump? And it's bringing together, it's trying to understand the benefits of the decarbonising grid, lifetime embodied carbon, which of course arises from not only putting a heat pump on a building, but all the insulation and other materials that go into retrofit and trying to make sense of that in the short term and then the long term. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. Um, it's been a very interesting bit of, of modelling using PHPP, uh, talking, sort of getting feedback from technical teams, sort of, uh, you know, sort of lived experience out in the retrofit world. Um, very, very uh, interesting process. We've been working with the Scottish Government um, on exploring its attempts to uh, define develop a retrofit standard for, for Scotland. Um, we've been involved with the British Standard Institute uh, working group developing a retrofit assessment standard. Um, we've just published a report by David Livier, which is us looking at uh, what's the future of, of materials uh, in terms of which are which are the most likely to be decarbonised in the future, and therefore which are the most likely that us or our descendants will be using to build buildings with. So that's available via the ACB website. We've continued to um, work, plan, and uh, explore how to best uh, uh, develop, redevelop the ACB low energy buildings database. Um, that's that's an ongoing project, but we're looking to sort of have that reworked, the first phase reworked uh, in September, in the autumn. Um, we continue to support the great work by Tim Martell, uh, developing PH Ribbon, the lifetime carbon accounting tool. It has other features as well, not just that, but you'll hear about that later in the day. Um, the Carbon Light Training Centre uh, has launched the Retrofit Coordination Course, which we'd uh, encourage all of you to, to have a look at. Uh, we are planning how best to um, not redesign, but sort of improve, update, and perhaps modularize our um, original Carbon Light Retrofit Foundation course. Uh, and we've been developing some uh, training modules for, um, for uh, the best center in, in Scotland. 
Uh, we're also developing a, a, a conference for this year, so back to face-to-face -face meeting, and that will be in the autumn, um, working with some edu our educational partners, the New Model Institute for Technology and Engineering, uh, and that will be based around their Centre for Advanced Timber Technology in Hereford. There you go. So, Jeff, perhaps if you want to kick off the conversation, okay. get us going. Okay, yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, well, I guess I'd just like to start by talking a little bit about um, my relationship with the ASB and why I think uh, it's such an, an interesting organization to, to to be part of and to be connected with um, from my perspective as a, you know, as a sustainable building publisher and advocate um, from the other side of the Irish Sea. Um, for starts, I mean, I really like the fact that we have the opportunity to go against the kind of Brexity grain and and start and build uh, build bridges uh, rather than walls. Not Boris Johnson style. Sorry for the, the swear jar there, Sarah. Um, <laughs> uh, the Tory swear jar that we we practice, practice on our podcast, but not not vainglorious uh, projects that will never be built. To you know, not I'm talking metaphorically to be clear. Um, but uh, you know, there's an awful lot to be learned through a kind of an open collaborative approach, and I think. One of the things that, uh, I mean, when I started the, uh, the magazine that ultimately became Passifest Plus 20 years ago, I knew nothing about sustainable building. And I didn't really pretend to know anything. Um, you, I came into it from this perspective of just asking stupid questions. And thankfully, uh, that uh, that can endear you to people. And, and some people will be very forthcoming. But one of the things that you learn, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem, I think, in all walks of life, and we certainly have it within our industry, is that there's an awful lot of spoofers out there. Um, and there's an awful lot of people who are well-meaning, um, but whose uh, ego, perhaps, and, uh, you know, in a competitive marketplace, um, uh, prevents them from showing that kind of vulnerability. Um, and, uh, you know, having to pretend that you have all of the answers is a fundamental problem in our industry. Um, we are all learning. The cliche, every day is a school day, is absolutely true. Um, and uh, that's one of the things that's really impressed me about the AECB in, in my dealings with it, is that there's um, this intellectual restlessness um, and this uh, this genuine thirst to, to to really probe into into the nuance of these issues that that can be difficult to suppose at times because we live in a time when people are looking for certainty and simplicity um, um, and you know it can be it's probably why the ACB has been a bit of a sort of sleeper organization that's grown organically um, uh, uh, you know in the way that it has but I think it's I think it's one of the reasons why we need it more than ever so uh, when we look at retrofit standards, I mean, you know, uh, for Andy to be talking about this, uh, you know, to, to actually be asking these questions, that there's a that shows uh, uh, a, a willingness to to be open to 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 acknowledge that we don't necessarily have all of the answers, we don't necessarily have all of the right approaches straight away, and that we need to, as the evidence changes, we change our positions. So um, I think it's you know. It's, that's a really thorny one as well, the idea of, of engaging with shallow retrofit, because, of course, there are these legitimate questions um, about whether we adopt approaches which lock in mediocrity and undermine the business case for really doing uh, the, the work that needs to be done. 
Um, mm-hmm. So that's, I don't think, at all what the ACB are getting at with this. It's a question of uh, of avoiding the opposite extreme, where, whereby you set such a demanding requirement and you are completely inflexible in meeting it that you're basically saying to people, look, either it's this or it's nothing. And that doesn't wash either. So uh, this is why this kind of relativistic approach, I think, is needed. Um, that's not to say that, I mean, obviously with a magazine called Passive House Plus, it'll un- it's be unsurprising to people to think that, you know, uh, we do have views that not all approaches to notionally sustainable building are equal. Um, there are certain approaches that when you uh, subject them to, to scrutiny uh, and Passive House being, I think, a really good example of this, uh, can be shown to work uh, very well in terms of actual energy performance and direct quality and so on. Um, so, you know, you still, you'll always be trying to aspire to these kinds of standards, but it's a recognition that, uh, especially with regard to existing buildings, um, there are challenges and uh, there, are, there are competing issues that we need to think about. Andy, I think you want to jump in there. I'm just thinking about uh, what Duncan and Sarah have been talking about for a while, which is, you know, t- getting people getting people going. I mean, at the moment, mm-hmm. we're calling this this revised retrofit standard step one. I mean, we haven't got a name for it, but, <clears throat> you know, step two is the existing retrofit standard. But there's a big there's a big difference in, in, in people are desperate to act. They do want to act. They have to act in a meaningful way. And and we also have to accept the fact that, you know, current government programs aren't ready the industry isn't ready, um, you know, to, to, to turn all of our aspirations, our 30 years of aspirations into a, a program which is actually achievable or safe um, or, or delivers, you know. Um, so I think what Sarah and, and Duncan have been talking about is, is, is perhaps you'd like to talk about it, you know, this idea of sort of getting people going and then sort of driving them, not driving them, but helping us all get towards the sort of better end of performance. I think mm. you had a sort of a pyramidal kind of metaphor <laughs> going here, didn't you? It's a pyramid. Pyramid. Triangle, it's not pyramid, pyramid triangle. Theme. Yeah. And That's a bit I heroic. Have tried to, to this using hand signals for ages, so that we try Let's to do hand signals, we can yeah. share. We can share that um, kind of beyond this. But I'd just like to say, I think this is an, um, uh, probably a good point for me to come in. So for anybody who doesn't know me, I'm uh, involved with ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. I'm the steering group coordinator there. So in terms of acting and trying to encourage people to find their agency, that's what we're all about. That's why we're why we exist. Um, and um, I think the reason and to build on what Jeff said, the reason that I have been drawn to the AECB is because of that sort of values that we share. It's a purpose driven organization and it's there to look at in depth at the industry and at what's offered and to work out how can we do it better and how can we do it together now without sounding cheesy it's very very much about that collaboration and I have seen a shift in the way that a huge swathe of the industry wants to work there's a big push in the last it's almost like since COP when everybody realized hang on like we actually need to turn all these words into action and I'm really seeing that and I'm very much enthused by the way that the AECB rolls with that and understands that everything isn't perfect and that we have to iteratively learn and reflect continuously as we go to improve that without sort of waiting for the perfect situation to be launched so I think generally as a society we're very much solutions driven Um, But we've never been in this situation before. And it doesn't serve our future generations to think that we know it all without 
showing. I think that was a great word that you used, Jeff, that vulnerability. You know, it doesn't help. I'm like you, I joined ACAN two and a half years ago and didn't know really anything, but I knew how I felt and I knew I wasn't happy and I knew I couldn't continue to work in an industry that was causing so much harm without being an active part of the solution. I think when it comes to retrofit and when it comes to the, the standards, I think getting people going is really important. And to like come to the, the wedge, whether you show it this way or this way, the point of it is that what we have is a load of building stock and a load of people with these buildings, whether they are the um, owners, the occupiers, whatever that is, but everybody is sitting in a building somewhere. And no, none of those buildings are doing really what they need to be doing in order to to, well, I was going to say to meet our targets, but it's not even just about targets. It's far bigger than that. What we really have to do is get everybody on a path towards the lowest carbon version of their buildings that they have. That won't happen A to B, one and done. What we need to do is encourage and inspire everybody to get on that path, protect the risk, which is what the, the sides of this, this wedge represent. We need to protect that risk. And we do that through things like having a whole building plan, taking that holistic approach, ensuring that we are monitoring or that we are evaluating and that we're feeding that back in again. I mean, you could argue that it maybe isn't so much of a wedge as it is something that's a little more circular, but it is really, really important to get everybody on that path. And if, to, to, to build on what you said, Andy, if you do start with this, like, I mean, you know, it's only this and nothing else, you've lost everybody. So you need to show how to make it. I mean, you have some interesting slides as well about, you know, showing the impact of the path um, on on that, which maybe we can look at later. But mm. yeah, I think it's really I think important. I think this this idea of the what we used to talk about, it was quite a few years ago now, we used to talk about shallow retrofit as something that's a bit sort of a bit bad, a bit naughty, you know. Shallow retrofit, yeah. you, you you spread things too thin, you you underperform, fuel poverty is 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 bust again a couple of years later, you know, it doesn't it doesn't get people far enough, but you lock out further improvements. So the thinking with this this new approach is that because of the whole house plan, you have a strategy you can work to. And because the first step, I mean the modeling that we're doing is kind of is uh, I'll probably show a few criteria. We're looking what criteria are we should we set as the standard? What is important? What is guidance? Mm-hmm. And it's got to be doable. So even with a with a light fabric retrofit and a heat pump, we could all, we could still strangle it if we set the criteria too demanding. So yeah. there's some things that might just not be able to give at all air tightness. Is there a hard you know figure for air tightness that has to be achieved? So we, we, we're constantly questioning ourselves. We are going to have to resolve this within, I think two or three weeks that's what the target we're setting for us <laughs> no pressure <laughs> and having having conversations with people like paul kenny in ireland you know he's also quite challenging um hmm. to us because he's focused on something that's doable as part of a government program but anyway so the approach is the step one part of the retrofit standard won't lock out future improvements that may be that this first you know topping up your attic insulation trying to improve the air tightness down to five um you know, not insulating the floors. It's, it assumes that there's cavity wall insulation there. If there isn't, it has to be added. Um, and that there are sort of typical plastic double glazed windows. So we assume there's a certain level there. If the house is particularly unimproved, then you would have to sort of add those other measures as well. But still, it's it's a fifteen to £20,000 max kind of, you know, investment. Whereas a full house retrofit currently, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's higher than that. It's higher than that just for the straight retrofit. So 
with the whole house plan, you don't lock out future improvements. That may be people taking that first step, spending their 15 grand, and of which hopefully eight or so will be a grant for the heat pump. They can achieve cost parity on the models, on the house types we're looking at. It may be that the, the, the solid wall properties that don't have the benefit of the cavity insulation uh, have to then move to renewing their radiator system. They might have to double up or even triple layer their radiators, which is relatively low impact in that household. But we're trying to keep from sort of jumping, I guess, to the solid wall insulation, just to keep the integrity of that first step. But people may or may not over the years further improve that building. And it may be that they do the step one, they reach cost parity or maybe a little bit better with gas, I mean, with natural gas, running the heat pump, the cost of that's important. And that, that house might sit there for 20 years, you know, and then the heat pump needs renewing and they might just renew the heat pump and that's fine. And we've looked at the embodied carbon, lifetime carbon of that, and it looks okay. Um, there is the question of, you know, all of these millions of houses done like that will still demand energy from the grid. And at some point, maybe in 10 years, 5, 10, 20 years, the government will say, actually, we need some of the other benefits to deep retrofit. You need to further improve your house. Here's some incentives to do it because we've put some value on public health. We've put some value on indoor air quality, health and well-being, you know, NH, avoided NHS costs. And they value the non-energy benefits, which allows them to get to to financial to, to incentivize the deeper retrofit and it's just this we don't know what the mix will be you know will there be sort of 20 million step one homes rolling forward through the decades or will there be you know sort of 10 million all the rest of deep retrofit we don't know so we have to remain flexible and offer these practical flexible routes duncan did you want to i think i think that's it andy i think i think you know we can come back to uh, just kind of works. It's, it is a bit of pragmatism and a flexibility that 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 doesn't lock in poor performance or or unintended consequences. Um, what what I'm keen we 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 we're trying to make this session as informative and interactive as we can. So what would be great? I posted some some um, chats saying, look, if you've got questions, um, please put them in the Q and A session. We'd like to kind of take them. We, we aim to finish here. I think. So we're around about quarter past ten. Um, so we can talk. You know, we're happy talking uh, amongst the four of us probably all day. But you know, working, yeah, just watch. Uh, <laughs> but if it'd be really good to get some of your feedback and interaction, and, and, and we'll, we welcome that. But I think what Jeff is saying is, yeah, we we don't have all of the answers, but we've got a pretty good idea where we need to take things. And the term that I think we all collectively use is it's about the reduction in demand for energy. Because that is the only sustainable way, both from a grid capacity and both from an end user capacity. So we have to, whilst we don't have all of the answers, um, we, we have a really good steer in, in terms of how we need to, to decarbonise. And I, I think that's the key term is, is, is that we use outside of the ACB from, from those who might not have the same level of building knowledge that, that we have in, in this kind of virtual room just now. It's about demand reduction. It has to be about how heat pumps can work or how low carbon heating can work in a way that's viable and sustainable, both from a grid capacity as well as an end user capacity. Shall we have a look at a slide? Because I think yeah. that's quite a good moment to 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 have a look at this. You know, um, will the decarbonising grid do everything for us? Well, of course it won't. You know, but how much do we have to reduce demand? So if we have a look at um, yeah, and while while you're pulling that up, I'll just say as well, if I can interject, I I had meant to add that. Um, you know, not ha not knowing all of the answers I, is one thing, 
I'm not trying to suggest that the ASIC is just a bunch of curious buffoons. You know, um, they, they do know things. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that, that I think is, is also very attractive about the organization is that um, there has been this uh, longstanding kind of uh, brutal uh, honesty kind of commitment to transparently kind of discussing and sharing information about what has worked and what hasn't. So we do know things. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we know, and there's a, and we and the and we can all have quite a lot of confidence about uh, about the kinds of measures that that can be done. Um, but uh, you know, there is nuance to this stuff. Yeah, and we've we've shared a lot of that into our training materials. So if you look at the carbon light retrofit course, there's a lot of warts and all in there, which of course is is one of the very best ways to learn. You know, where do things not quite work out and how do we do it better? So the reason I've got this slide up is because as part of trying to understand all of this, 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 this issue of how far do you go with retrofit, we have a short while ago now, but we worked with the national grid modeling team and, and tried to understand what their expectations were about demand reduction. So they have, through their future energy scenarios, created um, a sort of view of different pathways, different potential pathways in terms of how do we change our heating energy heating energy supply away from fossil fuels towards this 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 mixed basket of technologies so um this is just one this is just us looking at what they're suggesting in the different scenarios and thinking uh when we do our own modeling what might we think is is the most likely kind of mix of, of technologies so in this particular scenario that we're focusing on at the moment you can see that there's a bit of uh, so moving away from gas boilers to provide heat for homes towards some district heating a bit of direct electric some ground source heat pumps but not that many because you know the problems getting getting access to ground a lot of air source heat pumps and some remaining gas boilers um views about biomass and so on are sort of like disappeared into into very small sort of uh, contributions here so what they're also they 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 un, they don't understand buildings and they know that and they're keen to they said they were keen to find out but they do have assumptions about how as they move as as we electrify heat or, or move it over to um, district heating um we have to grow the supply and therefore we need to match supply and demand so they do have assumptions they do assume that, that the demand from from homes will 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 increase and these this scenarios here is what they're telling us they would expect they are expecting to see as they grow the heat the decarbonized heat supply they do expect to see under these different scenarios which are the different colors the average um uh, heat consumption of homes reduce so for example that that green line there that's the leading the way uh transformation which is a more electrified version of the future and more more heat pumps um similarly the consumer transformation it includes a lot of heat pumps um, in that, whereas the the steady progression is a more conservative uh, view of, um, of of what they would expect. So, I mean, you can get lost in these scenarios, but those numbers start to give you uh, an idea. And just to remind people that this sort of typical consumption, gas consumption in the UK is around about this sort of 11, 12,000 kilowatt hours per year, most of which is used for heating the home, which is why we've long concentrated on heating, because it's a bit of an intractable, intractable problem. 
Um, and it needs to be tackled in advance because these things take a long time to try to sort out. So we focused on heating for, for, for quite a long time. So if we go back to this, uh, this demand reduction here, you can see, so down from 11,000 by 2050, the average, the typical average consumption for heating in the house has got to be somewhere around this, this zone here. And we're pretty much assuming it's really got to be down at, at this level for the electrified heating scenarios with lots of heat pumps. So it's about 50, you know, 50%, isn't it? 50% reduction, some sort of trajectory there. So that's where we've got to get to. And that, that, that sort of informs our thinking. Well, Andy, there's a question that has come in, um, possibly not in the right order, but this one might be something to lead on from that. So I'm going to read it out. Mm. Um, question is, AECB has carried out the only study I know of that aims to optimise all costs, direct and socialised including grid strengthening, renewables, ill health burden, etc. This is the basis of the retro AB retrofit standard. Is it worth revisiting this analysis, considering one, reducing costs of wind, etc. And two, the dire global impacts of climate change happening now. And it goes on to say my emphasis on the point in on that point is that um, climate change is now almost out of control. A heat pump in an inefficient home is better than none. I think this is an interesting um, conversation to have. I mean, we interviewed Peter Rickaby on the podcast not so long ago, who was of the opinion that until we really get this uh, demand reduction issue well in hand, that it's probably worth considering one more generation of gas boilers before we do um, that. And I suppose that's it's, it, it really, the goalposts really have shifted, I suppose, given the energy uh, crisis and the price and the cost of living. So it's a really yeah. sticky question. Duncan. Well, yeah, so you know, I'll let Andy come in about the initial part of the question, but I want to think we, and I'd welcome more questions. I think we've had a few come in, which are good, but let's get some more because you've had half an hour of us and we can hopefully then try and answer some, some of your questions. But I think one of the things we've been focused on, because let's be honest, we're all in a fabric first sort of camp. That's where we've come from over the last decade and, and beyond. And I think our particular focus is on being how we design and deliver solutions that are based around professionals designing work that's um, uh, that fundamentally addresses the demand side of, of energy and, and doesn't lock in those unintended consequences that we see. However, what I think we have to be mindful about is I think heat pumps absolutely have their place. But I, th I think, and this is through a lot of what we do in the podcast, Sarah and Jeff, that we shouldn't assume that everyone who fits a gas boiler just now should be able and could be able to fit a heat pump. And I think we have to be slightly cautious about heat pumps as a panacea. They, ha they have to be designed and they have to be commissioned in, quite, in, in a much more sophisticated way. Now, if you speak to people like Joe Alsop, um, um, they'll tell you that a, a significant proportion of gas boilers in the UK haven't uh, contains in gas boilers aren't actually designed to be condensing gas boilers. So I think I would just urge a little bit of caution, and again, in our approach is about the design of, of heat pumps in a, a in a more sophisticated way than perhaps the, the, the industry is capable of doing just now. Is that fair to say, Andy, Sarah? I think so. I, I think that I like the way we're feeding, as questions come in, I think it's good, yes, to read them out rather than leave it to the end so we make sure yeah. we are answering questions. I think the... Um, yeah, climate change is pretty much out of control, isn't it? To be, to be honest about it, and there is no silver bullet, and there are different approaches to retrofitting depending on the opportunities in regions, particular buildings, and so on. But we do need to be thinking about doing it 
at scale. So the question is, 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 is putting a heat pump on any building better than nothing? This is, we've, we've looked, I'm going to show you a carbon related slide because this is in a way kind of where we're, where we're trying to understand the most. Where's me? Here we go. Okay. So there are, there are four slides in, in here. Let me just remove that. Right. So let's have a look at the, we talked about the decarbonization of the grid on the right. Now, I'll just make a quick point about that. These are idealized scenarios of what people expect to happen in the future. We must remember that at the moment, the, the actual measured um, carbon coefficient of the grid is higher than the, the idealized projected. And we do need to keep an eye on that because that's basically a, a performance gap. And that's what the atmosphere actually sees. Um, so if you look at these two graphs, bottom left, bottom right. What that is showing, we're using pH ribbon to do lifetime carbon analysis of the heating system of a house. And what happens when you put some materials and some equipment on it to put a heat pump, make some, um, uh, uh, in, you know, put some insulation on and so on. So the carbon burp relates to uh, the embodied upfront emissions from uh, the manufacturer um, and so on of, uh, of what you use to do the work. Um, the grey uh, bar down here, this shows you the emissions, the carbon dioxide emissions from the heating system each year. So what we've shown in this little graph here is the first, we've got five years of, the, of this typical semi-detached house, cavity wall insulation, plastic UPVC windows, a bit of attic insulation and so on. Air tightness, I think we set as, as nine, um, N59. Um, and that's five years of, of uh, burning gas for space heating. And that's, that's the emissions that relate to that. That's just under three tonnes there. Now, if in year five you do a step one, which is this light retrofit, so you top up the attic insulation a little bit, um, you do some air tightness measures to bring the, uh, the air tightness down to, to, to five, um, and you put a heat pump on it, a, a five, say five kilowatt uh, heat pump. I think that's what this scenario shows. So you can see that immediately, yes, there's a, there's a carbon burp, as we call it, in the first year, but you slash your heating greenhouse gas emissions from heating. So it looks like a very sensible thing to do. And then, of course, the grid continues to decarbonize following these curves. And so your remaining heating energy is, is decarbonizing. Now, if for whatever reasons, whether it's peak heat demand or other co-benefits of, um, of, of a deeper retrofit, if you do that deeper retrofit, say when the heat pump needs renewing 17, 20 years later, because you're using a lot more materials, you've got a bigger carbon burp and it looks terrible, doesn't it? You know, yes, you reduce your space heating emissions a little bit more and then you've got to renew the heat pump and there's another carbon burp there because this is an ongoing process. You know, you don't just do the building, it needs to be maintained and equipment needs to be replaced. But if you look at it over the 60-year um, period, this is the cumulative uh, carbon CO2 emissions that comes from that household in terms of its space heating. And you can see the gray area here is just continuing to burn gas. That's what it looks like. The CO2 emissions just rack up and up and up. This is tons of CO2 up on the left-hand side here. So both of these retrofits completely change the trajectory of the carbon emissions from space heating. Phase one, happening in year five, flattens that curve, doesn't completely flatten it. So there is still some offsetting technically needed for that. But that red dotted line shows you where that's, that light retrofit with a heat pump including the occasional replacement of that heat pump 
sort of heads, it, it's a nice flat line, which is what we want. We want flat for cumulative carbon. If you do phase two, yes, you expend a bit more carbon. You know, you've used up a bit more of your carbon budget, but it's not so bad seen in the context of cumulative carbon. So I think you've got both options available to you in terms of your, you know, your impact on the uh, on the atmosphere. I, I'd just like to add, if I can, that I think it's a really interesting question, but um, I think I don't think we should tie ourselves up in knots um, about um, whether it's, you know, I understand Peter Rickaby's perspective and I've an awful lot of respect for him, but on this point, um, I think if we're getting into a position where we have enough heat pumps installed uh, that we're starting to worry about this, um, then I think that's a good place to be. And I'd rather be, frankly, uh, proposing an Instagram or a TikTok tax to, to, to stop people um, uh, you know, if we're going to prioritize uh, electricity use, um, you know, uh, decarbonized electricity use, it it should be for for our for our needs for for our real needs, and I, and I think there has to be there's a priority of needs that should be should be, should be kind of a consideration uh, in that regard. Uh, there was a question in the Q and A before we move on to that. Yeah, I just want to add to that as well. I think one of the most impactful things that I learned. Um, this year was from Duncan. You mentioned from Joe Alsop and Leah Robson when they were talking about yeah. optimizing our existing heating systems, and the actual both the public service that would be delivered if everybody knew that they needed to turn their flow temperature from seventy degrees to fifty-five, and to understand how to live with that, and to set your radiators that it's low and slow, and immediately you have educated, you know, the country on low flow temperature heating systems on like right now there's this fear i think we've talked about this many times there's almost a fear of don't touch my thermostat don't touch my boiler people can't afford the call out if something goes wrong with their heating system and it's always been that way and there's always this sort of like tension around understanding how that works it isn't that, that difficult and and this is what leah and joe have been working really hard around doing about this education bit around this we would save vast amounts of carbon. We would put people in far more comfortable situations just with that bit. Just can we understand what we have in the first instance? Because that's another really key part of get, getting everybody involved, excuse me, is understanding how does your heating system work? How does your home work? Why is air tightness important? It doesn't mean sealing up your house and so that you can't breathe and can't have fresh air. That's not what it means. So if we could kind of do this explainer bit, which, you know, let's be honest, our government's never going to do that. But they, they should, and it would be a good news story for, for any government. So there's a bit around that. That then makes people understand how a heat pump system, it demystifies a little bit how that works and why the temperature is lower. It doesn't mean you're going to be colder. It means you're going to have less, you know, zero to 90, hot, cold, hot, cold, and everything that goes with that. You know, it's a really important bit before we kind of worry about, as you say, Jeff, are we even installing that many heat pumps yet? Have Absolutely. we got people to install them? Have we even got the heat pumps? Like, and and that's why it's really important to continue to do this sort of conversation, collaboration, communication bit as widely as you can. Because whilst these standards are being developed, which are absolutely crucial, and whilst we are pushing at the top to say, listen, you need to listen to the industry. We're we're trying. We also need to bring everybody along with us and empower people to understand how those systems work. You're absolutely right. So it's not you know not just trying to sell people stuff all of the time. That's obviously a fundamental problem with where we are um, and, and trying to properly educate people on, on, on how to use their buildings properly and how to live their lives is, is really important. 
I would add a note of caution that we should be very careful on the messaging on this. Um, what we don't want, and we've seen it in the, con- in the UK in the context of, um, of food prices, so the cost of living crisis, you know, we don't want government ministers telling uh, poor people uh, you know, how, how to survive on 30p a day or whatever, you know, um, and that it's their fault uh, because they don't know how to cook or anything like that. And we had this in Ireland a number of years ago. There was a government-funded campaign called The Power of One, which was about meant to be about, it was a big PR campaign about um, encouraging people to reduce the temperature in the thermostat and how the power that they as an individual had to uh, to reduce uh, energy consumption. And notwithstanding the, the concerns about this being a, a, a well established ploy of uh, of the fossil fuel industry to to make to foist the responsibility onto individuals um there is a there is a point here that uh that campaign was spectacularly badly received because i think he had um it was described uh pejoratively as the power of four dublin four uh the kind of the the affluent part of dublin um and the actress who who did the who did the ads for the campaign were very well heeled sounding you know so you have to make sure that you uh you you, you you there's a lot of sensitivity required in how that message is delivered you know i just want to play um i just want to play host for a wee seconds some really good questions coming in and, and i'm yeah. sure we, we, we answer them yeah. i think we've probably yeah. answered martin's coming in the q a and 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 uh and, and asked about dropping full temps. I, th- I think, you know, the way we become heat pump ready is how we can use our boilers more efficiently. You just know that's certainly one of the, so hopefully that's answered your question, Martin. On that, there's a great question earlier on about energy strong, or, or maybe see if we can, Andy and and, and, and Jeff can pick, because I think there's a, not specifically about energy, about energy strong, but whether we look at a, uh, Comfort as a service is, is, is a question. So not specifically a product type, but a service type is, is, a, is an interesting question. A um, couple coming through on air permeability or tightness, and I think that's something we want to tackle because the question is answered. How do we do that with people in situ? Um, I've got a specific project I'm working on just now, which I'm hoping to do a lot of external work with a with a product manufacturer. It's really exciting. Um, but there's a there's one good one that I saw just now is about ground source, ground source heat pumps. And I th- I'd like to take this if that's okay, but everyone else can chip in because mm-hmm. one of the things, so I've I've been involved in delivering large-scale district systems, renewable systems, uh, and, and, and a previous life a gas system. And I think we, we're talking about heat pumps and we, we, we tend to talk about heat pumps in an individual sense and we talk about district in a, in a grand sense and and if you look at Denmark, I don't think they consider anything less than two and a half thousand units um, to, to go district. What I think in terms of ground source we have, and feel free to challenge and come in, I think there's a solution in between those two. You know, there's big urban areas that, that will, London, Manchester, Birmingham, that are perfectly placed to distribute low carbon heat through optimization of schools and offices and, 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 and homes. But in some of the more suburban areas, especially where we have low-rise flats in Scotland, they call them sort of cottage-type flats. I think that, and and, and 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 we have obviously front and back door properties, bungalows and so on. I think there's something that, that hasn't been developed um, as a concept, which is about block heating, which is perhaps ground source serving four units or six units and how we can commonly harness some of those technologies in, in a way that perhaps because of the size of the flat, because of the location we couldn't do individually, I think what we don't want to go down is having an, an array of six air source heat pumps behind a, a block of flats. So what, what do you think of that? Is there something that we haven't done that's emerging, do you think, Sarah, Jeff, um, Andy, in terms of how we address heat at a block level? 
I think, think, I'll let Andy go on in the detail of this. I think just one observation, and it's exactly what was building in my mind when we're talking about, you know, the heat pump revolution. And we really don't want to see, like, there's four, I live in, like, I live in a three-story building here. There are four flats in this building. There are four gas boilers in this building. That's bananas. It's absolutely bananas. And I think, yes, whole block heating systems, like Sweden does that, like, we've got and it's not new technology this sort of stuff drives me mad you know this sort of individualistic tendencies towards the way we do everything is just not going to work it's not going to work we have to do it in another way which is why the education bit and the sort of the shift of values and, and the shift of, of of appreciation of what all of that can mean for us is really really important it's the story the story of how we revolutionize how we heat our homes and how we engage as a neighborhood and as a community not just like yeah I did my bit I'm fine like that's not going to get us to where we need to get to um, but Andy probably had something a little bit more technical and less ranty well I wasn't actually I was going to be a bit a bit gloomy <laughs> <laughs> You know, no, 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 the sun's shining today. Let's no, I will be gloomy. I will. Um, Denmark, you know, countries which have had, you know, there have been things, even Ireland. Ireland is at a more advanced stage with its retrofit programme because they spent many years longer preparing the ground. Denmark has been building and, and developing infrastructure and heating infrastructure, district heating. And, you know, I know it's climate induced as well, but sort of better standards of building for many, many years and decades. And that's a long time for us to sit here and be talking. I don't know, none of us really are saying this, but, you know, if we're giving the impression that we think because we're looking at grid issues and we're talking about we're looking at you know, long-term future scenario projections so, and we think that the ACB standard is part of a sort of what a viable you know program which will decarbonize our building stock I you know I have no idea whether we will rise to it at all because at the moment we're, we're clearly not there's a lot of talk a lot of a bit of modeling a lot of uh, you know misguided thinking some things that sound sensible but we've left it way 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 too late and if you're going to be, you know, if I'm being honest, I, I would imagine something more Blade Runner, you know, kind of happening. Um, somebody's phone there, that you see. Um, but however, we have to keep trying to do the right thing and to be useful in what we're doing. So contributing these, you know, whether it's a standard or, a, you know, or thinking or whatever we're contributing, it's all helping nudge things in a more, you know, in a direction where we get sort of better outcomes. But there's no point in underestimating the the fact we've, we've got very few years to be doing this. And so in our, you know, you've probably seen the ACBs looking at adoption curves, you know, how quickly will retrofit take off at scale and, and when will it tail off? And um, many, uh, you know, was it three years ago or something, we looked at the Green Party's proposals and it was like imagining doing all the retrofit, bang, really quickly and then finish it. It's utterly ridiculous, impossible. And so realistically, this is going to be a much longer term project. The question is what happens in the interim? You know, will we continue to burn gas and then sort of argue our way in the world? I'm sorry, we can't decarbonize our hitting systems. Agriculture will have to pick up the slack or, or we'll sort of, you know, get, get, get a few million acres in Africa and offset it in some way. You know, it's, a, it's going to be a messy and unsatisfactory process, but it doesn't mean we're not, you know, we're not doing useful work here what happens in the meantime and i think sarah you know just talking about people using you know the gas boilers more efficiently these are really important programs unfortunately they're not quite as interesting to uh, to get involved in they need to happen and it's a clear easy win for government to get on and do something like that it's 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 almost cost free yeah. and i think you know 
why is it not happening? We know why it's not happening. You know, where's the incentive to reduce the gas gas sales, energy sales? Duncan, just, just think, Dave. David has got a great point here, and 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 grid capacity. And I have some knowledge of grid capacity, having worked for a power company at, at, at one stage in, in my life. I would like to come on to the energy strong strong question. Um, so, if if one of you, um, uh, Jeff or, or 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 Sarah or Andy, want to pick up on that, would be great. I think David makes a really good point here, and again, it just it just articulates the argument that we have been promoting is that, and this is this is something that's not entirely well known. So we have energy production and we have energy distrib- distribution, and, and certainly in, in Scotland, the distribution companies are actually separate companies from the the the, the power production companies. Now, if we want a if we want to decarbonize not just our homes, primarily using some form of electricity to heat them through heat pumps or, or so on, and if we want to decarbonize our cars, what is not fully known is the, the the investment required to increase that capacity. And that's something we just need to be aware of because that comes at a cost. That that particular cost is, is a social cost and it's it's agreed by Ofgem and it is then reflected in our bills. So the, the network infrastructure companies. It's a really good presentation was that last year by Scottish Power, who said that, and I got this wrong in the podcast, um, a 10% switch in Scotland from, this is Scotland, so it just gives you an idea, a 10% switch from gas, which would be about 200,000 gas boilers coming off line and going on to electricity, would require a 100% network upgrade. Or 100%. Now, there's a diminishing return after that, but I think the point there is, would we, how much more capacity we would need to build? And it's significant. It's possibly two or 300%. I don't really know. The network planners would know that. But that is, again, a great example of why we need to reduce the demand because the lower you have in demand, that you know we, we will pay external costs through these types of upgrades as consumers, you know, or we will pay um, through increased through increased bills. So, just a really good question. I think we should. I think we should remember that you know the the fabric, the demand reduction through fabric measures and demand reduction through the efficiencies of heat pumps. I know it's technically incorrect to say a three hundred percent efficient heat pump, but that does reduce the demand by a third. So it, it, it yeah. does. Yes, it does. But if you are taking away gas, I mean, yes, 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 yes. So of course. So yeah, yeah I, I think the the, the point is probably multifaceted it's about designing heat pumps properly it's about reducing the load that that heat pump will be operating at there's there's lots of things in there but again it just articulates it just articulates in a way that that's, that's nice to hear from others that I, we have to work. yeah i don't think the acb is moving away from recognizing that you know we well, need to on average reduce the heat demand of the building stock by about 50 percent, and that requires yeah. deep fabric measures good air tightness and um, but 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 the realities of the current government, the, the realities of the culture of our industry, the way business models, it's not working in our favour. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's really important about the bit where we all started about, which is why why the AECB, why best, why why mm. ACAN, why all these organizations, and mm. why are we trying to do everything we can to mm. collaborate and share? Because this is part of culture change. This mm. is part of that. It's sort of, mm. you know, the bit that Jeff mentioned about vulnerability. It's like the industry um, are saying, you know, we need to learn from our mistakes and we need to um, share where we've done right and where it's not worked out well because there's massive learning in that. And that hasn't been the way of the industry until now where it's been much, much more about, you know, ta-da, look what we made and it's perfect and it's lovely and there was no mm. mistakes on the way and it came in on time on budget and blah, blah. 
like yeah. and and that doesn't help anybody that just continues to underline this sort of like pushing against each other instead of pulling together yeah. that's really important because we are going to need all of these routes every bit of it we're going to need loads of people to just throw heat pumps in whether they work yeah. or whether they don't work we're going to need um, those people to do internal insulation external insulation try and push as much on natural materials as possible because I think there was another question about air permeability and the need to understand how moisture works in in buildings and you know I there's a an excellent building physicist um Gloria Lowe um who will talk I think we should probably listen to her and her knowledge about how moisture moves and her concerns over retrofitting cavity wall insulation like there's lots of really really good knowledge out there but what's important is that we get that information out there and that we debate it out there collectively because what can happen and the bit that I'm sort of worried about is if only a small group of people take this conversation to a point and then end up somewhere which is so maybe we need to just do light retrofit it's a bit like what you talked about Jeff where there was a press piece in Ireland saying oh deep retrofit is dead long live shallow retrofit or, or something it isn't that it isn't like this is the answer there isn't one it, it's locks and it needs to be as you mentioned, Andy, it's got to be an iterative process of learning and reflection that's shared, you know, so that everybody... Well, that, that is the ACB that. way. You know, members yeah. do build, they do share, and we do learn and move forward. But how exactly. does that, you know, what about government policy? You know, the government policy for grant funding heat pumps. And similarly in Ireland, you know, looking at Ireland and asking those same questions. So you're rolling out a, a retrofit programme, heat pump-based retrofit programme. Um, if policy, How agile is policy? And how integrated it, assuming it, it you know, depart, departments talk to each other and, and an integrated policy comes out. Do right. you run it for a year and you throw a load of monitoring at it and then you immediately say, oh, we've got it wrong, we'll change it. You know, that's not the culture of policy making, is it? It's embarrassing. If it's well, no, but in, in, yeah. in Ireland, it's, you know, what we've done, and, and it, uh, are you sure you've done this a lot in the UK in the past? Our deep retrofit policy was based on, on pilots. So we had pilot projects. The, the the evidence from them was studied. Um, the 20, the 20, 20 house project. Study. There was more than that. There was a deep retrofit pilot scheme where there was um, four hundred homes that were deep retrofitted, um, and uh, and the evidence from that uh, was was in varying degrees of detail was was. Uh, Forgive me, Jeff, for that. Is that published? That four hundred home study. No, uh, some some parts of it are. Um, some of it will be coming into the NZEB 101 study that uh, Shane Coakley at UCD is, is monitoring. And there are, there are other universities involved. Uh, NUI Galway are, are doing monitoring as well. Mm. And some of it would just be internally held by S, by the Sustainable Energy Authority who, who commissioned it. Um, but I just think I, I, you know, I'd re-emphasize this point that, look, you know, um, I'd love to be an environmental despot who can just uh, the flick of a switch? Uh, you know, so it's not the make, first time you've shown those. I know. Yeah, I've, seen, I've got that tendency within. Yeah. You know, and the environmental <laughs> thing, I just take it or leave it. It's just the it's the control over everyone. You know. Um, so I think um, the point is that um, we're not whatever we do, and even with this government program in Ireland, like they've got a huge challenge to get anywhere yeah. near delivering the targets that they've got. Um, you're not going to get into a situation where uh, the kinds of measures we're talking about, yes, there are issues with regard to the electricity grid, for instance, you know, um, but I don't think we're going to get into a situation anytime soon where the decisions that people are taking on projects now are going to have, uh, make, you know, are going to be a drop in the ocean in terms of, of, of uh, that's a bit of an understatement perhaps, but um, in terms of, of the impact on the electricity grid. And again, Peter yeah. talked a long time ago about, about um, yeah. 
you know, um, pre-COVID about, about actually it's architects love building stuff and talk about building the city of the future, but actually probably what, what the future is going to look like is yeah. people not moving about very much. Well, that's know? the point of flexibility, isn't it? The, the, yeah. the, 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 the issues of the grid, we, we did start obsessing, you know, about peak load issues, but it's not a problem now. So let's get on with, the, you know, design our standards and what we do now for, for the conditions now, anticipating what might happen in 10, 20 years time. Yeah. And you know, yeah. there's all sorts of community microgrid stuff that that's starting to yeah. develop pace as well, which which offers some, uh, you know, some solutions in this regard. But we should crack on with a couple of these other questions because we're rapidly yeah, running yeah. out. Of I've just time. got our stage manager whispering in my ear. We have to have a costume change for our um, well, T two session. So yeah, we've got a session coming up. Should if anyone's on, on staying on, we get a really interesting session with uh, Tim Martell on PH Ribbon. Um, and Jürgen from the Pacifist Institute on PHPP10, so that's really interesting, came up at half past 10. So mm. we've got, will we say, five minutes left. Yeah, let's take some of these questions. I think really quick fire glib answers, everyone, okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What do you think of energy sprung? Go. Yeah. Well, well I, I think, can I reframe that question and not talk about a specific um, business model? What do we think about comfort as a service? That's, I, if you don't mind, I think that's a... That's that's an interesting topic. And also, let's combine air permeability with ventilation. Somebody had asked about NVHR ventilation. Let, let's let's talk about ventilation, uh, the, how critical it is, I think we all agree, uh, and, and NVHR, and let's look about comfort as a service. Yeah? Yeah, comfort as a service. I'll just chip in. You can, you can throw me out. Um, uh, very interesting, um, challenging uh, to put in place as a business, as a business case, but uh, the idea of, especially when you've got um, restrictions around property ownership and uh, liens on property into the bank finance and so on. But if you can uh, attach a debt in that way, you know, like get people to pay for comfort rather than kilowatt hours, um, then I think that, uh, that it's it's an interesting business model. And then then it, it inverts the normal utility model because it makes more business sense for them to sell you less kilowatt hours to deliver the comfort. You know, so that is interesting. Yeah, you want me to talk about? Oh, sorry. Now, well, Scott Foster says, um, so the ECB is part of the United Nations Centre of Excellence for High Performance Building. And Scott Foster, who we all know, uh, has a really interesting um, presentation where he talks, he, he holds up his phone and he says, look, you know, nobody would think about spending, you know, the, the price per minute for a phone call, the price per text anymore. And and he says that heating, uh, domestic heating is one is one industry that every other industry has changed, whether it be broadband or streaming services, where... Um, we have to look at how you how you buy comfort and 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 the optimization of how that is done is with the seller of that comfort rather than the individual. I mean, everything on everything in terms of energy efficiency in the UK is primarily with the individual, isn't it? You know, we're we're told to turn down things and and so on. But there's an efficiency you can create at the at the seller of that energy that I think is quite appealing. So sorry, yeah, Andy, on you go. I was just going to answer the ventilation question because um, I've just opened up um, the, the ACB technical group's response to me on ventilation. And I think um, I'll just give a little sort of potted summary of where we where the consensus is developing. So we, we're thinking that we should try to remove the link between air tightness, air permeability and ventilation because we want to see every home have a well-designed well-designed ventilation system in its own right, independent of how leaky the building is. Um, in terms of MVHR, uh, clients tend to choose this with comfort or indoor air quality in mind. And we think that that, that, can, that can work at most levels of air permeability, not just the sort of super tight passive house levels. Um, and then in terms of decentralized room by room MVHR, 
we not we're not seeing huge advantages in that and have some sort of concerns about um well the, well, the cost of it it does add up room by room mvhr uh, the noise issues might relate to that and also does it give good indoor quality i think the jury's out on that um where we think the, the you know the the, the the mainstream will be going is um rather than whole house mev mechanical extrant ventilation which is good and works well with some caveats about um, it being bypassed by the stack effect sometimes is um, continuous running wet room extract fans, um, humidity controlled. That's kind of the seems the obvious uh, ventilation solution that will work on a, on, a, on, a, on a wide you know on a mass scale. Uh, yeah, I just chip in to say that um, green building. There's this old school view about uh, natural ventilation um, as being preferable to mechanical. It sounds much nicer, doesn't it? Natural than mechanical, um, but um, you know, we need to move away from magical thinking. I don't want to be to be dismissive. Um, any mechanically ventilated building should have the option to naturally ventilate too. You always have the option to open open windows and regulate uh, ventilation in that way. But but you need a ventilation system that is going to be able to deliver a predictable amount of air changes in in all conditions. Uh, and even with uh, high pollutant passive stack ventilation systems, um, it's there are there are going to be situations where uh, where it's almost impossible to 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 deliver the required ventilation rate. And when you look at the evidence and not just the theory and not just the desktop studies, actual empirical monitoring studies, um, you know, the best example for me it was a brilliant. Uh, I can share it uh, later uh, in, in the notes. Um, a systematic review of the health and ventilation rate relationship in buildings. And when it came to natural ventilation, the the conclusion. This is a study of. Under 180 different studies they reviewed. When it came to natural ventilation, the conclusion was, was devastating. They basically said, with natural ventilation, um, uh, there's no way of knowing uh, whether the the results in the individual studies were were, were right or not. Uh, the, 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 whether you get a, week, a, a weekly average or a spot measurement, there's too many variables affecting it. There's, it's it's random. It's too you know you cannot rely on it um, as a fail proof. Great, thank you. I think we've run ourselves out of time. We have. Yeah, we, we have. We have well, yeah, well, listen, that was great. I thought that was a really good conversation and I've, I've hopefully tried to answer people in the chat. Sarah? I just want to put a call to action. Anybody isn't a member of the AECB, please consider joining. If you are not familiar with ACAN, please come and check us out. Just find your group and find a place to continue the conversation because that's where this change will and culture change will start. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Brilliant. That's it. And hopefully Jeff's going to join us at half past ten. We'll be hearing from Tim on pH ribbon. I think it's really exciting in terms of how we assess embodied carbon and the work that Tim's been doing, and Jeff in, in the magazine. So hopefully you can see us then. Okay. Uh, thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thanks Bye. for your time. Thank you. Bye. Bye for now.